Welcome to the Dying Task Podcast. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Elise Hugh is on the show today. She's the author of a new book called Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. The K-Beauty Capital is Seoul, South Korea, and that's where Elise was based for a few years, running a news bureau for NPR. So this is a skin booster that's essentially like an injectable moisturizer. She wasn't there to talk about beauty. And this is Ansu Seng. Uh, yeah, trainee. <laughs> How many times do you do this a day? She was actually there to talk about the ugly realities of Kim Jong-un and North Korean missile tests more than anything else. But here's the thing. If you spend 30 minutes in Seoul. I have lidocaine cream all over my face. That's what your TikTok starts sounding like. It is impossible to not get sucked into how widespread, regardless of your age and gender, skin care is. And Elise did. And so did I. Let's go. <laughs> USA, baby. <laughs> Congratulations. Feels good. Thank you. At the 2018 Winter Olympics, I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Back in 2018, I was in South Korea for the Winter Olympics. Got overwhelmed by that Korean wave, as they call it. Pop music, fashion, television. Hello, Squid Games. And most of all, skincare. South Korea leads the world in beauty. It is everywhere. You walk into a pharmacy in South Korea, and I'm not exaggerating, half of it is face masks, sections in the pharmacy for every age, gender, skin type. I brought home dozens of face masks, so many face masks. And Elise, working there, also got kind of sucked into that beauty culture. So Flawless is an in-depth look at how beauty got standardized. So for background, Elise Hugh is an award-winning journalist. She's a fellow grad at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Go Mizzou! She worked for NPR in a variety of roles, and she's the host of TED Talks Daily. And also, she's the mom of three daughters. That's one of her girls singing a little Frozen while they lived in Seoul. And it was those little girls that Elise started thinking about and started thinking about what kind of message is the beauty world sending to her kids? I mean, if TikTok made me bring home a suitcase of masks from South Korea, what is it going to be like when her little girls are older? So Flawless, a part memoir about Elise's time in South Korea. It's investigative international reporting, and it's a really raw look at what we're willing to do to constantly one-up our beauty routines, and why do we do it? On this Dying to Ask, how Korean beauty culture seeped into and then dominated beauty culture around the world. Ever heard of technological gaze? It's a thing. I'll tell you how it's impacting your feelings about yourself. Spoiler, not good. How Zoom forever changed and blurred our visual and virtual worlds. Why is glowy skin a thing? It is a thing. I like it. Should I? A reality check on how much beauty costs in terms of our time and our money. And how can we get a better balance in our lives where maybe we're a little more accepting of who we actually are? Elise Hugh is my guest this week on Dying Task. Have you ever wondered how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through, and they pull it off. 
and maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask. Elise, thanks for being on the Dying to Ask podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So our former professor, Stacey Wolfel, actually connected us. That's (laughs) right. Um, You and I both know this guy is so special. I think he has seen generations and generations of Mizzou grads. So M-I-Z and thank you to Stacey. Z-O-U. And if you know, you know. Uh, Yes. No, he sent me a note and he said, I think you need to interview Elise. And he was right. Fantastic. So Elise, you have a new book. It's called Flawless Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. And it's about time that you spent um, working for NPR in South Korea. Yeah, that's right. I was the first ever bureau chief for NPR in the whole entire Northeast Asia region. So I was responsible for covering North Korea, South Korea, and Japan. And we very strategically decided to plant that bureau in Seoul, which is such a dynamic place. And the Tokyo diplomats were not very happy about it. The the Japan diplomats (laughs) weren't happy about it because they were like, why not Tokyo? This is a giant, you know, megalopolis. But the reason why was not only because of the North Korea, South Korea geopolitical story, which is always interesting and dynamic, but also because South Korea over the last 10, 20 years has really not only just become an economic powerhouse, it's one of the top 10 economies of the world, but it's also a soft power superpower. Um, What I mean by that is there's a Korean wave, Hallyu. It's really swept the planet with pop music through K-pop, K-drama through television, uh, film, the gaming industry, food, sports. Um, esports in particular are really big coming out of South Korea and BTS is what the most popular boy band ever it's loved mm-hmm. by people around the world and um, I think over 1 million people tuned in to watch BTS speak at the UN General Assembly so it crashed the servers because no, no at no time in history have that many people turned turned up to watch the UN so it's really so fascinating to see South Korea's rise. And as South Korea has risen, it has really transmitted images of beautiful Koreans. And so the more celebrities are coming out of Korea, the more people want to look like celebrities. Yeah. And you know, I was there I was there back in 2018 for the Winter Olympics. And I went in studying a lot of, you know, the history of the country and certainly understanding the impact that tech had had. I, I had heard about the Korean beauty culture, but nothing prepared me for seeing it in person. And when you go into like a drugstore there, there are literally sections broken up by gender and age for face masks. And I was blown away by it. Yes, yes. This industry is humongous. And there's so many of the practices and the sort of products that we use today that really originated in South Korea. So when we think about the goals now for dewy skin, for poreless skin, for glass skin, all of those ideas came from Korean beauty first. They were doing it first. Sheet masks, foot peels, pimple patches, multi-step regimens, snail mucin, um, snail snail mucin essences and moisturizers. So a lot of these natural ingredients that you hear about, green tea, ginseng, mugwort, that's South Korea always being on the cutting edge of innovation and research and development. There are 
more than 8,000 beauty brands in South Korea, which is a country small <laughs> enough to fit in the space between Los Angeles and San Francisco. I think I bought most of them while I was there. I'll be honest. <laughs> yes. They so sell suitcases at the stores too. For all I basically brought them. home a suitcase full of face masks. I was so blown away by the whole thing. Now, obviously NPR did not send you there to cover face masks. You were there because of Kim Jong-un and missiles and you know really important things. But that said, bringing your family there and, and immersing yourself in the culture for years, a few years, how long did it take before you felt like gobsmacked by what you were seeing and maybe how you were being seen? I think pretty early on, I was feeling what I now know is called lookism. So lookism. So, okay, is, what is that? It's appearance-based discrimination. So add okay. to the isms of sexism and racism, lookism. And Anytime you've been taunted on the schoolyards because of your hair, or for in my case, my mosquito bite scars, that's lookism. Um, or your size, fat phobia is lookism. You know, and I don't think we talk about it that much because we often, especially in America, try and cloak our language in like everybody's beautiful, everybody has a bikini body. But in South Korea, they say the quiet part out loud. They'll just tell huh. you, like, hey, you look tired today. We can do something about that. In my case, it was, ooh, you have freckles. We can remove them for you. And, um, you know, when, when I had my postpartum body, after I had kids, two of my babies were born in Seoul. And it was very quickly, people were like, well, how, have you tried this slim wrap? And so very quickly, <laughs> you learn and internalize it's, this. It's idea. like everybody's your grandma. Exactly. You know, you know how grandmas grandma, can just kind of do, say everything? Yep. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and it's interesting. So not only is that kind of discrimination uh, insidious and can produce a lot of anxiety, it also does produce a lot of commerce. And I didn't think about kind of the capitalistic consumeristic side of it until I got into researching the book, because when, you, when there are freckles that need to be removed, then they can sell you a service or a procedure to remove those freckles. Mm -hmm. And what South Korea is really good at, uh, the industry is really good at, is saying like, there's something wrong with you. You can buy the procedure or the product to fix it. So huh. it does fuel a lot of commerce. And also this notion that our bodies are malleable and that we can change them. And did the economics kind of push the culture then from a, like, a, like a much more um, organized government perspective. Yeah. Is that also part of this? Yeah, Korea went from a pre-modern to a post-modern society within something like 30 years. And then after- an Which is I a really am, short period of time. It's a really time. short period period of time and maybe the shortest period of time. So they call it the miracle on the Han. And then in the late 1990s, had to get bailed out because of a currency crisis. So mm -hmm. in 1997, the IMF loaned South Korea billions and billions of dollars and they needed to pay that money back. And so South Korea needed new engines for economic growth. One of them was IT infrastructure and really investing in IT. And in that case, it um, helped South Korea really springboard to become one of the first fully wired societies in the world and have the fastest internet in the world by the time yeah. I moved there in 2015. On the other hand, it focused on a soft power strategy. So that helped really spread this you because there was a government report that indicated if South Korea could make a blockbuster on the scale 
of Jurassic Park <laughs> in the US that it would equal to, if not exceed, how much money they would make from the manufacturing of 1.5 million Korean manufactured cars. Wow. So they were like, we need to get on this. And can you, ima- like, can you imagine that meeting? People sitting around yeah, the table? Like, <laughs> all we need is a Jurassic Park. Right. That's all we need. <laughs> Interestingly, though, helped by all the technology and the, you know, the, the, the pipes that they helped de- deliver content with, K-pop and movies and animation uh-huh. became huge by now, right? And then in addition to that, medical tourism. So the idea that you can come to South Korea and actually get the injections and the fillers or the surgeries in order to improve your appearance to be more camera ready, that has really become an area for strategic growth. So the South Korean government and the tourism organizations have really gotten together to say, all right, how can we become a destination for skin fixes and body fixes and nose jobs and whatever it is? Um, That industry itself has grown just tenfold or something within the last decade or so. And fueled largely by Chinese and Japanese tourists, but more and more I'll be on TikTok or Instagram reels and see these influencers say, Mm -hmm. come to South Korea with me to get a bunch of dermatology, you know, or derma med spa procedures done at a fraction of the price. How did you not lose your mind and or self when you're around it all the time? Because, you know, that's a slippery slope. Once you start going down that rabbit hole, it's deep. I think it was helpful that I was older. I think, you know, I was 32 by the time I moved to South Korea. And so I had already had my late 1990s eating disorder, which as it turns out, you know, it was very, um, it was very isolating for me at the time. But then I, as it turned out, so many people were going through it and um, I wished that I would have known. And so I feel like I'm pretty um, straightforward. And so you were in a good place. Yeah. Articulate about it now, because by the time I was in my thirties, I was like, I've already wrestled with a lot of the demons that I had and the self-consciousness that I had about the way I looked. But then South Korea with just like the endless assault of images of the ideal woman, a lot of ads, just floor to ceiling ads of just faces again and again and again. And so you really get a sense of what you're supposed to look like such that when I was back in my apartment, at the end of the day, I would look at myself in the mirror and be like, ooh, you know, I'm too big. My hair's too frizzy, <laughs> whatever it is. My, my chest is too flat, whatever it is. And, and thank goodness I was older and able to kind of recognize and hear that internal dialogue. But I feel as though I ended up writing a whole book on this topic because beauty is such a tentpole of the modern woman's experience. And it mm-hmm. is for all of us everywhere. And, and all of us have had those grandmas or aunties who have picked on us for our looks, or we've been um, picked on at school because of however we looked. And so our appearance gets so tied up and wrapped up into worthiness. And what we really need to do is examine that in order to break it and to do less work. So one thing that a lot of South Korean women talk to me about is just how much time and money and energy they spent trying to chase these ideals in order to fit into a society where your professional success and your personal success Mm -hmm. and your social success are all wrapped up into whether you look the part. And it's exhausting. So not only did they tally up the hundreds of dollars they spent per month 
and that's just on products, not procedures. Right. Procedures will right. cost thousands, right? If you add it all up. Um, they also realized how much time and energy they yeah. were devoting to all these beauty practices. And time is such an important factor to count and to kind of take in because it's a lever of our freedom. Because if we're doing, you know, nipping and tucking or primping in whatever way, then we're not doing something else. It always comes at the expense of other ways we can spend mm -hmm. our time. And so one of the messages or conclusions that we arrive at by the time you get to the end of the book is to sort of examine that and, and examine the amount of resources we devote to grooming. Yeah, the time the time one really jumped at me. And I've always said, you know, working in television news, I will spend 20, 25 minutes getting ready in the morning for our morning news. Mm -hmm. And my partner will walk in and like splash some water on his face and walk <laughs> back out. I'm not kidding you. Right. Right. So every time he walks back back out, I'm like, it's good to be a man. It's so shrugged off. But it's, it's true. So easily but shrugged it is off true. as a part of everyday life. And it's labor we don't just do for free. It's labor we're often paying to do. And so just as so many of millennials like me are remapping our relationship with work. So, you know, especially during COVID and coming out of COVID, we've realized how much hustle culture kind of gets, gets internalized and we're all part of it and it's making us miserable in various ways. So I think a lot of millennials like me are sort of the ones that are leading the charge to not go back to the office or not be available on the slacks all the time, or really have some bounds around vacation time and weekends. So just as we're remapping our relationship with office work, I think that we can remap our relationship with beauty work. Okay, so how does it, what, tell, me, tell me what that looks like for you. Yeah, for me, there's a big question that I've arrived at, and it's, is this practice or procedure something that helps me step deeper into myself or does it feel tantamount to a costume? So is this practice or procedure um, ego-driven or is it soul-driven? Mm -hmm. And I think that we all have an emotional engine inside of ourselves. I'm in Southern California, so call me woo, but I'm calling it our souls. <laughs> We've come a long and, way from Missouri, haven't we? Right, exactly. And, and I think that we all know, like this is something I'm doing because I'm looking over my shoulder and I'm competing and I'm trying to compare myself with others in my community. Um, and it could be a small community. It could just be like my four mom friends. I'm doing it because everybody's doing it. Or I'm doing this practice because it does feel like it makes me more me. Like I'm yeah. more Elise when I do this. It's nurturing to myself or it's nurturing to somebody else. And the more I think about self-care practices, mm -hmm. I really think the most affirmative self-care is care that is predicated on caring for one another and the community. And what I mean by that is like, there was this moment in my book where my father painted nails for the first time and he had never done it before, but his granddaughter, my youngest Luna asked him to paint nails. And I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh, you the know, sweetest. Like, that is so sweet and it's nurturing. And there's something about beauty and the paradox of beauty on one hand, it can feel like a hamster wheel. It can feel like a lot of labor. It can feel like a crutch. On the other hand, it can be really um, nurturing. And there's something that's really beautiful about the touch of, you know, getting a scalp massage before you get your hair cut, if you're privileged enough to do that. If it, There's something really beautiful about getting your nails painted and doing that maybe with 
a good friend or a family member, mm -hmm. you know, in my case, my daughters. And so the paradox of beauty and the reason why it's so complicated and complex and interesting to me is because it's both, right? It can be empowering, it can be diminishing, and yeah. it can be a real vessel for self-expression and empowerment, but it can also be a vessel in which we're trying to chase this um, perfection that we're never going to meet. And it feels like, gosh, a prison. And so right. Flawless is a book that kind of examines all of the dynamics of that in a way that hopefully is pretty accessible because my story is in there too. And my struggles are in there too. Do you know, you know what really jumped at me because I, and you look at beauty and the relationship to things you might see on social media um, as grownups, because we yes. have, we had a, a foot in and out of two different worlds, right? The digital world and the non-digital world. Right. Right. But I do worry, and this is, this is what I think I processed out of your book about our kids. So I have teenagers, I have, I have boys, 17 and 14, you have girls. Yeah. Um, I do look at like the stuff that they're taking in and it has made me understand a little differently um, the images that they are trying to live up to. And as many times as I say, that's not real, yeah. to them it is real and it's super influential. Yes, and then it also is creating all these subconscious beliefs about what is attractive or what is desirable. I see it with my own tween daughter, you know, already she wants a skincare routine and she wants to buy all these products. I'm like, do you know yes. what I write about? <laughs> but that's like all the teenage girls have a skin regimen. I mean, I think I was 40 before I had a skin regimen. I they still are don't all, have a proper one. They're, <laughs> they're all working on wrinkles. I'm like, you don't have wrinkles? I know, wrinkles. I, know. I mean, like there's a lot of preventative Botox now in, yes. in people's 20s. And that I think we just crucially have to step back and remember that that is what is being sold and marketed to right. us, you know, and it's so easy to kind of get them while they're young. Yes, <laughs> always. When, when it comes to, to TikTok and Instagram, these algorithms really feed more and more of what you tend to engage in. And so the more you're looking at skincare content, the more skincare content you're getting. And so I write about this notion of the technological gaze, which I think is something I saw so clearly in South Korea and it's happening everywhere. And it's a way to think about kind of the way we learn beauty standards is from what we see again and again and again, such that the male gaze was how women were supposed to perform for the perspective of men. But now we're all victims of the technological gaze, which is how we all learn how to perform for a machine, for a machine-driven perspective, for what the algorithms tend to like, um, for what the filters teach us to look like. And what it does is create this gap, this dissonance between what we see when we are filtered. You know, our skin is perfected by AI tools when we're right. under filters, right? And then we'll see that, but then look at our physical bodies, our actual meat space bodies in the mirror and feel like, gosh, I'm not good enough or I don't look good enough and I need to change that. And I think that really fuels this filter to filler pipeline is what I call it. It's just like, oh, I'm so smooth and, you know, yeah. um, firm when I look at myself under the technological gaze that I must now change my physical body to match it. It's and it is interesting. Sometimes I'll meet somebody and I won't even recognize them because I'll wow. realize I've, on, I've only seen them 
with filters. And wow. I feel, I, I mean, I, I will have that thought, but you're like, oh my gosh, that was not really them. And there's something really, really sad about it. Yeah. There, I it, mean, it, I don't want to use them because I don't want people to be disappointed. <laughs> they made me. Also, I think that we have to break the link between appearance and worthiness, that our appearance has no bearing on our worthiness, our inherent worthiness as human beings. And the more we link the two things, the more it's marginalizing for anybody who can't fit in, anybody who can't afford the various things we're supposed to do in order to look like we fit in. And it creates anxiety for all of us because yeah. even if you are at the top of the system in which you look exactly like you're supposed to look in terms of conventional beauty standards, you're anxious about trying to keep up and maintain, maintain them constantly. So it's we only have a minute left. What yeah. is your challenge? <laughs> I try I'm to, feeling frightened right yes, now. What no, is your no, challenge? I, I and, and I definitely want to take the time to say this, which is I think about the next generation constantly, and I really want to be a good ancestor. So I strive to model two different kinds of thinking for my children that really weave into one another. One is body neutrality, which emphasizes what the body can do rather than what it looks like. So um, there are no good bodies or bad bodies, they're bodies and they're all worthy and they're capable of so much. The other idea is something that I call sensualism and it's conceived in academia and it focuses on what the body feels. And so when you're trying on clothes, so now when my girls try on clothes, instead of immediately jumping to, oh my gosh, that looks so cute on you, I have to retrain myself to ask whether they can move easily. If yeah. the fit is comfortable for their daily activities, how the fabric love feel that. against their skin. Love that. And so it's body neutrality and sensual sensualism. They're both ways to think about what the body can feel and do over what the body simply looks like. Oh, it's so good. Okay. Well, the book is flawless. It's out now and it's so utterly fascinating. Um, it's about beauty, but it's really not. It's about a lot of things. Yeah. It's about technology and commerce and feminism, lots of things. What are good ways for people to keep up with you and to kind of follow what you're up to? My home base online is elisehu.com, E-L-I-S-E-H-U.com. It's been a few weeks since I recorded that episode with Elise. Have I given up on my face masks? No. Do I still want glowy skin? I do. Do I think I'll ever get it? I don't. Do I have a better appreciation for k-beauty culture and maybe the impact that it has even in my own life i do <laughs> i do and i kind of hate how um influenced i am by all of it i really do especially instagram instagram talks me into a lot of things please check out flawless it is an excellent read it's so well written parts of it are really funny the memoir part is very very funny very honest and then the investigative journalism part is so well researched really, really good. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening this week. I'd love it if you could text this episode to a friend. And if you have a minute and you want some extra points, please leave a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us right now. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and this is Dying to Ask. <laughs>